Good morning. Greetings in the name of Jesus. Let us stand and begin our time hearing from God's word. We'll read it together. I'll start, it'll be on the screen, and then we can respond all together. Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now together. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Yes, who is the King of glory? It is no longer a question for us. It is a declaration that Christ is our King. He is the King of glory, ruling and reigning even now. So let us join our voices and exalt the name of our King. All hail, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all.
your voice. Oh, that with all the sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. There is indeed an everlasting song that we will one day join when we see Jesus literally face to face and we're in a choir where every voice is sweet and strong and pain and sorrows shall be no more. Amen? Amen. You guys can take a seat. If you're visiting for the first time, we're glad you're here. We'd love to meet you in person. And so we'll have a few pastors up here immediately after the service up front. Again, we'd love to greet you and welcome you. Also, we'd love it if you'd reach out today or tomorrow by email. You can do that by emailing us at info at dscabq.com. I want to let you all know about two things coming up that really are going to help us in our worship and our fellowship. The first is for ladies, and then the second is going to be for families with uh, babies and one-year-olds. In terms of ladies... Um, we've got our women's Bible studies coming up this summer, as in June. Now, if I could kind of zoom in on each of these book covers, if you're like me, you'd look at one and you'd say, man, that is a great book. I've heard about it, haven't read it. I want to be in a discussion group about that book. You look at the next one, you think, I didn't know that book existed. That title sounds really intriguing. I'm not sure which one to pick now. Then you look at the third, same thing. They're all great books. Uh, so sign up this week. This is our first announcement, but they'll fill up kind of fast, I think. Most of them are in person. Some of them are by Zoom. Um, so sign up soon for those book studies. Uh, and then partly because it's Mother's Day and we want to celebrate this, and partly because we're kind of ready for this anyway, uh, in terms of families with babies and one-year-olds, I get to be the messenger of really, really good news today. And that news is that two weeks from now, May 23rd, we're going to open up our nursery and our walkers, which is up through 24 months. Yeah. Yeah, I told Carla, people better clap for this. It's good news. Um, so Pastor Tim Bradley and Tate, who's working on this, but he's in Texas. He'll be here later this month. Um, and then Scott Pilgrim, they've all been working hard on this. Of course, in the near future, we'll roll out two- and three-year-olds, and then right up through the rest of the preschool and elementary grades um, soon to come. So if you've got questions, email Tim Bradley this month. Starting June 1st, I'll have you email Tate, but I'll remind you of that. And if you're here with a baby or a one-year-old and you don't feel comfortable doing that yet, of course it's okay to keep bringing them into the worship center. You guys know our MO. We love for families to worship all together here in this room, even at the youngest ages, so completely your choice. Also remember that two weeks from today, we start our second service at 1045, so we go back to that um, older and original time spot. Pray with me, please. Let's pray for our service this morning. Father, we ask that you would use the summer women's studies to encourage women, to lift up heads and eyes that might be starting to fall down for one reason or another. And for those women who stand firm to help them reach out to others. 
And Father, we ask that you would help our pastors, Tim and Tate, as they prepare to help parents and to teach the word of God to children. Help us to hear this morning in the song and the sermon, the call of our captain, Jesus. Help us to see that we are weak, but he is strong. And we need to stand only in the strength that you have given. Give us a heart to praise you and trust you this morning and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you, like me, have failed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself this past week, won't you stand with me and join in this confession together? I'll start again, and then we can all respond together. God of everlasting love, we confess that we've been unfaithful to our covenant with you and with one another. We have worshiped other gods, money, power, greed, and convenience. We have served our own self-interest instead of serving only you and your people. We have not loved our neighbor as you have commanded, nor have we rightly loved ourselves. Say this with me. Forgive us, gracious God, and bring us back into the fullness of our covenant with you and one another. Then open our lips and renew our hearts that we may sing your praise through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now let us open our lips and with renewed hearts sing our great Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King the triumphs of his My gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy the name that calms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can Saints below and saints above the church. 
that, say amen. amen. You can be seated. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for mothers who are like Ruth. Ruth who gleaned grain from the fields until the sun went down and then worked to process it, who did not complain about lacking comforts. Rather, Ruth was grateful and humble. Father, we thank you for the model of Esther and the many mothers in this room and watching who emulate her, who stand up for God's people even at pain of being mocked or hurt. Esther, who cared for an elderly uncle and respected those who came before him. She was not preoccupied with becoming independent or wealthy. She put others above self. Father, we're thankful for Elizabeth in the New Testament, who was for so many years childless, the longing for a child. In her case, she heard a greeting from Mary, and her baby, who would be John, leaped in her womb. Yet, Father, we know there are women in our church who long someday to feel the movement of a baby inside them. May you give them the patience of Elizabeth. And more, will you help them trust you regardless of whether the answer now is yes or no. And we thank you, Father, for the mothers in this church who are like the Mary Magdalene's of today, mothers who have come out of affliction or abuse or are still in the throes of depression or grief. Yet there are mothers who would anoint Jesus with the best oil if he were before them. Mothers who say, we set our minds on things above, not on what we see. We ask you to help our mothers as they shape the rhythms of their homes around grace and repentance and forgiveness. We ask you to be the daily bread of tired mothers, to be their living water. We ask you to be the source of their physical, emotional, and spiritual strength. And this day, may we be thankful for the gift of mothers and be mindful that Jesus, in one of his last words on the cross, demonstrated the respect and love he had for his own mother. Father, help us to live out your grace in our earthly relationships. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. Let us stand now and express our unity, our oneness with one another and with Christ. Perfect of 
that Jesus Christ is all, all that we need, all that we have, all our hope in this life. So God, I pray that you would use this time now as we turn to hear from you in your word and, and consider Christ, God, that you would help us to do that, that you would give us open ears, hearts that are willing to receive this amazing gospel. God, if there's anyone in here that hasn't yet believed, Lord, use this time now to help them see what what there is for us in Christ and for all of us, Lord. Encourage us and help us to grow into Christ who is our head and, and in that grow in union with one another. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, be seated. Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Galatians chapter three. So if you've got your Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter three. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm on staff here. Pastor Ryan is, uh, is he still in Kentucky? Yes, he's still in Kentucky. His daughter, Autumn, graduated from college. So we're glad for her, and that's where they are this morning. That's right. So praise God for them, and pray for them as they travel back. So we're in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 23 through 29. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law 
imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's God's word. Amen. So if I were to ask you to share your whole life story in under a minute, how would you do it? You probably wouldn't even have to think about organizing your life story around certain milestones in your life, key moments where you transitioned from one stage of life into the next, never to go back to that earlier stage of maturity. Maybe you would talk about when you became a Christian or getting your first job, getting married. Graduation, that's a, that's a big one. Anybody else graduate recently? Let's see, show of hands. Nobody? Anybody graduating soon? There we go. All right, good. Everybody clap. That's it. I wanted a single somebody out. That's great. Congratulations. Because graduation, that's a, that's a big milestone, right? You, you move from being a high school student into being a college student, from a college student to being just a person, Today's Mother's Day. We're so thankful for all of you mothers, so grateful for you mothers. Motherhood is a big milestone, right? Becoming a mother. One day you don't have a kid, and then the next day they just hand you this kid, and you cannot go back. <laughs> Some days I know you wish you could, you know, just for a minute, not, you know, but just to remember what it was like before. These milestones, these significant moments. In the Bible, in the story of the Bible, the whole Bible, The biblical covenants are the milestones around which we organize the story. And we're not going to get into this morning all of the covenants. There are six big biblical covenants that I think are rightly said to be kind of the backbone of the whole story of God's people and how God has interacted with them. But but in this section in the book of Galatians, especially beginning in chapter 3, verse 15, the apostle Paul is, is telling the story of how God's people relate to the law in terms of that redemptive history. And he's using these milestones of the covenant to kind of make his argument. So if you remember last week, Paul was talking about the Abrahamic covenant and how that related to the Mosaic covenant, and specifically that the Mosaic covenant came much later after the Abrahamic covenant. Well, in this passage this morning, he's, he's in the same train of thought. He's still doing redemptive historical argument here, and he's going to talk about how the Mosaic covenant relates to the new covenant in Christ. And we'll see in this passage that it's all about the contrasts, okay? So he is going to contrast such things as saying there is a before and an after. Or really what he says is a before and a now, because we are still continuing in this new covenant life. He's also going to talk about a contrast between we and you. So talking about we being the Jewish people and you being the church made up of Jews 
and Gentiles. But the biggest contrast that we're going to see in this portion of the book of Galatians is the contrast between the word under and the word in. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. In verses 23 and 24, we will look at what it means to be under the law. And then you'll see that verse 25 starts with the word but. And everything after that is about our life in Christ. So under the law, in Christ. Can you remember that? That's our outline for this morning. So we're going to start with under the law in verse 23. Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And as I said, we refers to the the Jewish people, the ethnic nation of Israel that are descended genetically from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whom God changed his name to Israel. And Paul says we because he's including himself in that category. He was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And he says before faith came. This is a really interesting way for him to describe the whole period of redemptive history from the moment the Jews received the law of God at Mount Sinai until the coming of Jesus Christ. He calls that whole period before faith came. And that doesn't mean that there was no faith in that period, right? Because he's in the book of Galatians already said Abraham was made righteous by his faith before that happened. And there were certainly faithful Israelites. So he's not talking about the possibility of faith. No, what he's saying is faith really refers to the truth that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the new thing that came in the new covenant. And that's what he says in verse 24. But what we need to see is how does Paul describe life under the law before faith came. What words does he use? Captivity, imprisonment. We were held captive under the law. And this isn't the first time he's used the word imprisonment. He actually talks about being imprisoned in verse 22, but imprisoned to what? There he says, the scriptures, that is God, imprisoned everything under sin. Now here he says that the Jews were especially imprisoned under the law. And we've got to understand what this means for this to make sense. When he says that everything was imprisoned under sin, he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles and everyone were imprisoned under sin at the fall. When Adam disobeyed God and he transgressed the covenant that he was in with God, as the book of Hosea says, that Adam transgressed the covenant with God and so was plunged into the curse for disobedience. And with him, the whole world, the whole creation, and everyone else who was born in Adam. That we have all inherited the curse, the fall of sin. And what that means is that we are imprisoned to sin. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we are born in a state of disobedience just like Adam was, and we cannot obey God's commands. That's everybody. That's all of us. Everything was imprisoned under sin. Acts chapter 17 says that from one man came all of the nations of the earth. But in the story of the Bible, we know that God chose one of those nations descended from Adam, or really God formed a nation descended from Adam out of Abraham called the nation of Israel. And to Israel, God made a different covenant, the covenant at Mount Sinai. 
and he gave them his law. But the purpose of that law was to just serve to show the Jewish people how imprisoned to sin they were. So everyone is imprisoned to sin, like I said. And Romans chapter one actually says that everyone has the law of God written on their hearts. So we all have this, this kind of vague sense of right and wrong. And usually that kind of lines up, all right? It's interesting, if you look at all the different cultures in the world, there's more or less some agreement about what things are really, really bad. And every one of us has, has this law of God on our hearts that acts like a conscience. And so sometimes we know without anybody having to tell us that we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing. And we can feel that. But that law of God written on our hearts and, and the fallen state of our minds makes it really hard for us to know with certainty what is right and what is wrong. And we can deceive ourselves very easily. And whole communities, whole, whole societies can deceive themselves very easily into calling something that is bad good or something that is good bad. Because the law is written on our hearts and so it's vague. But to the Jewish people, God gave the law written on tablets of stone by his own finger. So if there is any question about what is right or what is wrong, God settled it once and for all for the Jewish people. These are the rules. Keep these rules. And so if we say, well, just the problem is that we don't really know or can't agree what is right and wrong, then the Jews should have had no problem because they knew exactly what was right and wrong. And yet what do we see? That even though they had the law of God, they couldn't keep it. It's not enough to just know it because they were still in Adam. So even though they had the law, they were still imprisoned to sin. And I mean, God made it so easy for them, right? He says, let me just boil it down to these 10 things, these 10 commandments. Just do this and you'll be doing my will. But they couldn't do it. Instead, the law only served to show them how far they fell short of God's right commandments. So rather than being a way for Israel to come out from their imprisonment to sin, it just made their imprisonment all the more obvious. I was thinking about, you know, those invisible fences that you get for your dog, okay, and it's got the little collar, and the dog kind of has to figure out by trial and error where the fence is, right? Well, for the Jews, God gave them a big, bright, beautiful electric fence. So they knew where not to go, but it's still a fence, right? They're still imprisoned, and they still fall short. And it's in this sense that in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul can say that the law was a curse. So the obvious question is, is God's law bad? What's the purpose of God's law? This is the question that Paul has been trying to answer in this section. And, and the answer is obvious. It's not law that's the problem. It's sin that's the problem. Paul makes a very similar point in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. He says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. That's, that's the problem. Sin. And the answer to the question, why then the law? It was to show us how sinful we are. This is what we call the second use of the law. 
Pastor Ryan talked about this last week, that there's three uses of the law, and this is really, really important, especially in the Reformation tradition that we're in. So I'm gonna go through this again because we need to know this. There's three ways that the law is used. The first is as a curb on evil. Okay, so you can just remember that word, a curb. And this especially pertains to how we organize our society and our civil laws, okay? That we, we have this sense of right and wrong derived from the law written on our hearts. And so we'll make rules to put in place over ourselves so that we're not as bad as we could be. It's a curb on evil. That's the first use. The third use is as a guide, okay? So you can remember that word. And this is for regenerate believers. Once we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, once we have become spiritual people, God's law, which is spiritual, becomes a guide for us in how to live a right life. So the law doesn't save us, but once we are saved, the good, holy, righteous commandment of God teaches us how to live righteously in this world. So that's the law as a guide of the third use. But this is the second use, which is the law as a mirror. Okay, so you got that curb, mirror, guide. Can you remember that too? The law is a mirror, is God's law holding up a mirror to you so that you can know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of your heart and that you cannot keep God's commandments. The more you see God's commandments and the more you try to keep God's commandments, the more you just realize, I can't do this. And the whole point of the second use of the law is to drive you to Christ. Augustine said this, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. So even in that way, the law is good and it is a grace to us because it teaches us we need a savior. We need someone outside of ourselves. So I wonder here if anybody is feeling this imprisonment to the law. No matter how hard you try to do what you know that you should be doing, no matter how hard you try to quit doing what you know you shouldn't be doing, you can't do it. You know you should stop drinking. You know you should stop looking at pornography. You know you should stop losing your temper so quickly. You know you should stop buying stuff that you can't afford. You know this, and yet as hard as you try, you just can't stop. Friend, maybe this is God holding up the mirror to you and saying you can't do it in yourself. You are imprisoned under sin. You need help to teach you to cry out to the only one who can help you. The second use of the law is to hold up that mirror to you to teach you to look away from the mirror, which is to say to stop looking at yourself and look to Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took all of, of your disobedience onto himself, even though he obeyed God's law perfectly. And he suffered the consequences that you deserve for your breaking God's commandments again and again. And he said, it's okay, give it to me. 
so that you can be forgiven and so that I can help you keep God's commandments. This is what the second use of the law does and it's not just for unbelievers, Christian. As you study God's word and as you're reminded of of God's holy nature and his right commandments, we too should read that and think, I'm falling so short. And we should learn too all the more just to keep imploring the help of grace. That every sin that we sin is one that Jesus died for on the cross already. And that he wants to forgive us and to help us walk in his forgiveness. Some theologians call the second use of the law the pedagogical use of the law. I like mirror a lot better. But do you know this word pedagogical? It means teaching, related to, to teaching. What is the law teaching us? That the righteous will live by faith. And I think the meaning of that word pedagogical, it takes on even a a deeper tone when you look at it in light of verse 24. Verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That word guardian is, is super interesting. And I don't know what your Bible says, the translation of your Bible says. This is a hard word to translate. In Greek, it's the word paedagogos, which is where we get the word pedagogical. And some translations of the Bible actually translate it, a tutor. I think the King James says schoolmaster. Okay? But it's, it's tricky to translate into English because this was a really specific role in ancient Greco-Roman society that we just don't have anymore. We don't look around and see pedagogoi, as it were. But if you can understand what this is in its context, this is super cool. In an ancient Greco-Roman family, especially a wealthy family, If they had a baby boy, when the boy got old enough to be able to go out and to go to school, the father in that family would choose one of his most trusted servants, and he would designate that man to be the boy's pedagogos, or his pedagogue. And what this man's job was, was was to not so much be a teacher, the boy would have teachers, he would go to school to learn from a teacher. The pedagogue was more like his chaperone, and it would go with the boy Whenever he went out of the house, he was with him the whole time as long as he was a boy. And whenever you look at the pedagogues as they're depicted in ancient artwork, they always have a rod in their hand. What's the rod for? That kid stepped out of line at all. Wham! The pedagogue was the the disciplinarian. He was like the worst kind of babysitter. But the neat thing about a babysitter is it is necessarily temporary, right? So every little boy, as they're growing up, they just cannot wait until they reach the age where they don't have to be under the pedagogue anymore. And in Roman society, they would have this whole ceremony where that would happen. So as the boy's growing up and he's going to school and he's learning how to live and work and be in their ancient society, the father would watch him. And when he thought that the boy was was big enough and mature enough and virtuous enough to be a man... They would have a ceremony where he would graduate into manhood. So the whole time the little boy is growing up, he actually wore a certain kind of toga called a toga pretextus that had purple trim on it. And then he would wear a special necklace. And so you could just look around really quickly and you could see that's a little boy. Okay? But when the father thought he was prepared to be a man, they would have this whole ceremony and he would take off the toga pretextus, he would take off that necklace and he would put on a new toga called a toga virilis, 
a toga of virility. I want one of those. A toga of manhood. And as soon as he was wearing the toga of manhood, everybody knew that he was an inheritor of the full rights of his family. He was a Roman citizen, and he was no longer under the pedagogue. He was free. He was able to do what he was called to do as a man in that society. He didn't need the disciplinarian anymore. And Paul says that was the Mosaic Covenant. How cool is that? Abraham, the covenant with Abraham was like when the kid was born. He was born and he was already the inheritor of all of the the family promises. The Mosaic Covenant when, when he was old enough to start going to school and he needed a guardian to discipline him, to teach him. And the coming of Christ in the new covenant is when you come out from under the guardian. You graduate into manhood. And what these false teachers in Galatia were doing was like coming to someone that had graduated from college and saying, you still need to go to class. You need to submit to these teachers. You need to keep doing this homework. You don't get to enjoy all the rights and privileges of your degree. It's foolishness. Verse 24, again, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So that leads right into the next section. Verse 25, in Christ, there's our word but. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, no longer under a pedagogue. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As I said, you could go through this section and you could see words like in and into. Paul's going to use this language throughout the book of Galatians. In fact, he uses it about 300 times in all of his writings in the New Testament. This language of being in Christ or Christ being in us or being with Christ. You remember he's already said this. I have been crucified with Christ. What does this mean? I think this language, we, we use it so much that we can kind of become familiar with, with just, that's just how we talk. But this is trying to express something really, really important, which is our union with Christ. This is the language that, that the New Testament uses to talk about how we have been joined with Christ in this incredible, supernatural, almost mystical union that transcends time and space We are joined with Christ the way that a body is joined to its head. The way that a vine is joined to branches. The way that a husband is united with his wife. This is the way that the Bible talks about our union with Christ. And the point is that because we are so tied up with Christ, we are so in Christ, that whatever we say is true of Jesus is true of us. The amazing thing about this is that this union was true before you even knew that it was true. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 says that you were actually united to Christ before the foundations of the world. In Christ, he chose you. So that means that when Christ became incarnate as a man 2,000 years ago, you were already with him. When Christ was living his perfect life, you were living it with him. When Christ died on the cross, you died with him. Yourself, your sinful self. 
When he was laid in the grave, there you were with him. When he rose again from the dead, you were risen with him and you are united with him right now as he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is in you, leading you to walk in the same kind of righteousness in which he walked as a new creation because he's a new creation. Everything that is true of Christ is true of you because you were joined with Christ before the foundation of the world. Herman Bovink said this so well. The whole church, all of you, if you have believed in Jesus, and those of you who will but haven't yet, the whole church, comprehended in Christ as its head, has objectively been crucified, has died, been resurrected, and glorified with him. All the benefits of grace, therefore, lie prepared and ready for the church in the person of Christ. All is finished. God has been reconciled. Nothing remains to be added from the side of humans. Atonement, forgiveness, justification, the mystical union, sanctification, glorification, and so on. They do not come into being after and as a result of faith, but are objectively, actively present in Christ. Hallelujah. The moment you believe, God pours out on you the riches of blessings that he prepared before the foundation of the world to be yours. And they are yours because you are united to Christ. And all of these blessings that flow out of that, we could just spend and will spend eternity unpacking and enjoying. But in this passage, Paul is going to list at least, what I see, at least four blessings. And I'm going to go through these quickly. The first blessing that is ours because of our union with Christ is our freedom. Verse 25 again. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So see that Paul is still using the word we. He's still applying the metaphor of the pedagogue to the Jewish people. And he says that the law has served its purpose. It has taught us that the righteous will live by faith and the gospel, in the gospel, faith has appeared, the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. So we're not under it anymore. We don't need to obey the Mosaic law anymore. He's saying we don't need to circumcise our children. We don't need to keep these strict dietary laws. We don't need to practice the, the different rituals and the feasts and all of that. That's, that's just not, not for us anymore. We have come out from underneath the pedagogue. But that doesn't mean that we don't have any relationship to the law anymore. Any more than a kid that graduates from college shouldn't try to recall the things that they learned in college. Maybe even dust off their notes from time to time and go back and remember what they learned. That's the third use of the law. That's what happens when you are mature. You're not, you don't move into manhood and say, all right, now I can do whatever I want to do. The fence has come down but you still know why it's wise to stay within those boundaries. And that's what freedom looks like. Freedom isn't just to do whatever the, in the world you want. Freedom is so that you can do what you are supposed to do without a pedagogue. Paul says that the Jews have been set free from the prison of the law, but it's more than that. We have all come out from our imprisonment to sin. So the biggest problem was that we could not obey God's law in ourselves, 
Christ has set us free from even that prison because he took all of the curse of sin on himself. And so now we can walk in the freedom of obeying God's law. But not the law of the letter, the law of the spirit, the law of love. And Paul is gonna get into all of this a lot more in Galatians. So he says, the Jews have been set free from the law and so has everyone else who believes. So that's the next benefit, the next blessing that we consider because of our union with Christ, which is adoption. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So this is where we get that abrupt shift from we to you. So now he's speaking to the church, the church as comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. He says, you are sons of God. And look, this is shocking. This would have been shocking for a Jew to say because the Jews thought they were the only children of God. And the Bible actually says as much. In Exodus chapter four, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. So the Jews' only category for being a child of God was you had to be Jewish. And they had a category for Gentiles coming into God's family, but it looked like converting to Judaism fully all the way. And then you got to be a child of God. And I think this is the misunderstanding that these false teachers are still operating with. That even in Christ, if you want to be in Christ's family, you still have to become Jewish. But Paul is saying, "Uh uh-uh. No. You are all sons of God. How? Through faith. You see that verse 26? What he's saying is that sonship, being in God's family, it no longer has anything to do with ethnicity. Now it's by believing. He says as much in the book of Romans chapter 9, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And how did Abraham receive the promise? By faith. So it's the same argument. Let me just say right here, I think this is, this is gonna be helpful for some of us. What this means is not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone in the world is a child of God. It's very common to hear people talk about that, and I don't know when it became common to talk about that, but that's, that's frankly just wrong and confusing to talk about people like everyone is a child of God. We believe that everyone is made in the image of God, which I think is what people are trying to get at when they say that. We believe that everybody's made in the image of God, so everybody is equally valuable, equally uh, worthy of love and dignity and respect and justice. Okay, we believe that everybody is in the image of God. But you're not born a child of God. You become a child of God. John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. And what is it called when you are not someone's child and you become their child? Adoption. And that's the word. He doesn't use it here, but he's going to use it in chapter four, verse five. God sent his son so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And adoption is another milestone, isn't it? As we consider 
these big moments in life. Some of you families have adopted children. Some of you in this room have been adopted. And if that's something that interests you, if you've been praying and thinking about adoption, we have an adoption ministry and we want to help you do that because we love adoption because it's the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's what God has done for us. And it's so sweet. It's such a sweet milestone. You are not a part of a family. And then, and then suddenly you are joined to this family and there's no going back. I remember hearing a story one time about a family that adopted a little kid from, from a poor country. And everything was going well in the process. He came into the family. He was, he was getting along great with the other kids and with the parents. But he wasn't. He wasn't eating any of the snacks in the refrigerator. And the father figured out what was going on. And so, so he grabbed the kid one day. He said, here, come here. And he walked him over to the refrigerator in the kitchen. And he opened up the doors as wide as he could. And he said, son, all of this is yours. This is, this is your family. These are your snacks. Help yourself. Anytime you want, I am not holding anything back from you because you are fully a part of this family. That's what God has done for us in Christ. We are sons and daughters of God and he holds nothing of his good blessings back from us even though we were, we were not a part of his family. By faith we have been brought in. And the emphasis in verse 26 is on the word all. All of you are sons and daughters of of God, or as we would say back home, all y'all, all y'all are sons and daughters. There is no exception to this for any reason. And that's the next blessing that we see that flows out of our union with Christ is that we are one in Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When he says baptism, that could refer either to the inward spiritual reality of baptism or the outward expression of baptism. The word baptize means to plunge all the way into, to immerse into. That's why when we baptize people, they get all the way into the water because that's what the word means. And Paul is saying that when you believe in Jesus, you are plunged into Christ. Isn't that cool? That's how united you are with Christ. It's like you dove into him and you never come out. You are so united with him that when he died, you died. And when he rose, you rose. And that's what we portray in the outward sign of baptism, that you go into the water and you come out. It's a public profession. And Paul says that when you do that, when you go through this milestone of getting baptized, you are putting on Christ. And that verb, putting on, is like putting on a garment. And I have to think he's thinking about that toga virilis, don't you? Okay, you have come out from the pedagogue and then you put on, not, not a toga, but Jesus. Christ's righteousness, so that when God sees you, he sees Christ. But even more, just like that Roman man would be wearing this toga and everybody would look at him and know, okay, that, that is a Roman citizen. That is a man. The whole world looks at us. And they see this is someone that has in the waters of baptism professed that they are a Christian, but even more, as they live every day, they are living out Christ-likeness. 
This struck me the other day. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, that Christians don't have special clothes. Lots of other, have you thought about how common this is in other religions? Even the Jews today, they have special clothes so that you can see, oh, there's a Jew. Muslims wear certain kinds of clothes. Sikhs wear certain kinds of clothes so that everybody in the world would know this is the religion that I partake of or I participate in. But we don't wear special clothes. But we do. Our special clothes are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul's gonna say in Galatians 5, 23. That's our special clothes, that we live like Jesus in the world. And people see us and like, man, they're really cool. They're really nice. They're really loving. They're really patient. They're really kind. They're really self-controlled. What is it about you? What religion do you belong to? We say, I've been baptized into Christ. But in the Roman world, it was just a wealthy male Roman that could put on the toga virilis. In the church, it's everybody. There are no distinctions. That's what he says, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a crucial verse to understanding Galatians, and it is especially crucial for our own day. Does it strike you that Paul is going for the three big things? Ethnicity, class, and gender? Do you ever hear about that? And as important as this is in our own society, it was actually probably a bigger deal in the first century. Because in the first century, they weren't even trying to be equal like we are. They didn't even have that as an objective virtue. The Romans were imperial conquerors. And they enslaved up to two-thirds of their population. And they would regularly take baby girls and just leave them on the side of the road because women were deemed inferior in their culture. And they didn't even think there was anything wrong with that. And it wasn't just the Romans, the Jews. In the Jewish prayer book, a Jewish man would pray, Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, for you have not made me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. I'm serious. They would pray that. And so what Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians, what the Christians believed both for the Greek world and for the Jewish world was revolutionary. And I would even say that the value of equality that we have, that we extend to all people, it's because we have a Christian heritage in our culture that has this view, okay, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. Those distinctions, they don't matter the way that the world says that they do. And that's not to say that they don't matter at all. I need to say what this verse is is not saying. This is not saying that we should erase or ignore those distinctions. Just consider that with respect to gender. Read read the Apostle Paul elsewhere. He is very clear that men and women are different. Did you guys know that? Men and women are different? And they're even different in terms of authority and submission. Paul's got no problem with that. He's got no problem saying that men and women are different. They have different complementary roles. And he's not trying to remove that. That stays in place, even as he says there's no male 
or female. And so I think that also means that we can extend it to these other categories. I don't think that we should use this verse to support a kind of naive colorblindness that says that someone's ethnic or cultural background just doesn't matter anymore. Or that, that somebody's uh, privileges in the sense of what, how much wealth they were born with or weren't born with, that those things don't, don't matter into how somebody's story unfolds, okay? We all come into the church with different backgrounds, with different culture, with different experiences, with different strengths and weaknesses, with different hurts. And God doesn't want us to just erase that diversity or subsume it into some new kind of culture. I think God actually loves the diversity that he sees in the church. I think that's what the book of Revelation chapter five is celebrating, that that there's different tongues and tribes and nations, okay, that that diversity is a good thing that glorifies God. So we can't use this verse to to just wipe that all out. But neither can we use it to do what I think our culture does way too much these days, outside of the church, but it creeps into the church which is to emphasize these distinctions like they matter above everything else. That this is the most important person, or the most important thing about a person. What the world would say is that if you look at me, the very first thing that you should see and what you should think about that matters most about me is that I'm white, that I'm middle class, that I'm cisgendered, whatever that means, heterosexual, able-bodied, and a man. And that's what matters most about me. And what matters most about you is how you compare to me. If you are similar to me or you are different from me. If you're similar to me and then you are complicit somehow in some structure of oppression or if you're different from me, then then I am some kind of person that you should be suspicious of. That you should that you should treat as an enemy and assume that I am your enemy because of these things about me. That's how our culture defines people. And it says that these distinctions, these marks, ethnicity, class, and gender, this is all that matters and that by heightening those distinctions, we will solve the world's problems. That's the argument. And so you have to, let me just say, because I don't want to pick on people, I want to solve the world's problems too. People that are, that are focusing on these distinctions and this, what they think is a solution, they see that the world's broken, right? Do you see that? They want to love their neighbor. They want to, they want to fix injustice in the world. That's good things. But that, that approach, what's sometimes called like intersectionality or, or even critical theory, that approach, that's not going to fix the world. It's not going to work. You know what is going to work? Being in Christ. Because what does Paul say? Even though, again, I'm saying we don't just wipe those distinctions out. We don't, we don't erase those differences. But in Christ, in the church, when you see me, the first thing that you should think of is brother. Or maybe a white brother, a middle class brother, I'm a male brother, of course. <laughs> but I'm in Christ. I'm united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ, then we're united together. And we're going to be together forever. (laughs) So we've got to start getting along now because we're going to be together forever. And so when I look at a sister who has darker skin than I have, has a very different upbringing than I had, 
very different culture than the one that I have. The first thing I still see is sister. And me and Kristen want to invite that sister into our house. And I sit her down on my couch and I say, in one minute, tell me the story of your life. No, I won't give her a minute. I'll let her tell her story. I want to hear her. I want to get to know my sister because we're family. And if part of her story is her explaining to me how, how her background and her, her upbringing, how that has affected her, I want to hear about that. And I want to hear about how I can, how I can love her. If part of her story is that she's been hurt, I want to hear about that. And I want to help her heal in Christ. I want to hear about the differences that we have. But as a family... That's how the world's problems are going to get solved. And even more than that, to not focus on our differences, but to focus on what we have in common, which is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that, that paid for both of us, sinful people, in Adam, and now moved into one new man in Christ. Isn't that an amazing blessing that flows out of our union, that we are one in Christ? And the last thing that we see in this section is that we are heirs in Christ. So we have been set free, we are adopted, we are one, and we are heirs in Christ. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And the word heirs, it's a little word in there, but this is really what the whole section has been driving to. You inherit, it's like the guy with the refrigerator. This is all yours. And Paul is saying, what do you inherit? You inherit all of the blessings of Abraham. All of the things that God promised to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. They're yours. How are they yours? Well, Paul has already said that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Remember what we said, that he said that God coming to Abraham in Genesis 12 was him preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Everything that God promised to Abraham was about Jesus. It was the gospel. And then if you are united to Jesus, and Jesus is Abraham's offspring, and whatever is true of Jesus is true of you, then guess what, brothers and sisters? We are the offspring of Abraham. And that means that everything that God promised to Abraham, we enjoy in Christ. Church, you are the great nation that God promised to Abraham. You are the stars in the sky. You are the one that will receive the great name. And that's the name of Jesus. And you will inherit a new promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, and you will reign with Christ over the whole world. And through you, church, through your being in Christ, and through you wearing Christ in this world, God is going to bless all of the nations of the earth as we go out and make disciples, because we are the heirs of Abraham. Let's pray. God, thank you for this inheritance that is ours in Christ. Thank you for the union that we have with Christ and with one another. Just as we were united with you before the foundation of the world, we were united with every other Christian. And so God, I pray that you would help us to live out this unity, especially in an age that is so divided. God, that you would bless us with, with gospel union and that you would bless us with Christ-likeness, that we would be more and more like Jesus so that we would live in this world and people would look at us and they would see you and they would believe 
and be saved. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to respond, to sing out as brothers and sisters. church to go and live that out if you are here and you haven't been set free in Christ you can just believe and if you have questions about that if you want to talk more about that or or if I've said anything today that's confusing don't don't leave without without coming to talk to me or talk to one of the other pastors that we'll have up front here this morning the church I send you out as inheritors as heirs 
of every blessing that's in Jesus with this word from Ephesians. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. You are dismissed. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday.